Hey, we're at episode three of Altered Mobility, and I'm your host, Cheryl Gross Glazer. Today you may have the question, what the heck are you covering, and what does this have anything to do with public transportation or public space? But it kind of does, and I decided to do it, so I'm here with my nice cup of coffee, which I'll talk about in a second. Anyway, and today we are covering um, two ancient texts, the Epic of Gilgamesh and the Bible, and just touching on them, comparing and contrasting as a way to look at morality and what we even think of when we think of uh, good and bad and morality and the ways we view cities versus places outside of cities. Now onto my cup of coffee. I am drinking a blend of uh, red white and black from uh, Zeke's with their Guatemala blend. I have not been asked to sponsor them, but I love their coffee, and oh, this is really nice. It's like when you upgrade from a lower scotch to a higher one, and you think, wow, I really get what people are talking about. Anyway, okay, so here we go to the Epic of Gilgamesh and the Bible and what this at all has to do with things like public transportation, public spaces, and even with equity. So I will say that from time to time in this podcast, we are going to examine things like laws or structures or biographies of people or aspects of culture and how they affect um, or help form our attitudes about mobility and public space. And so we'll start with that today, exploring their significance and delve into the foundation of at least what I think of as a U.S. mindset. I think it's somewhat less so for other places around the world. Um, so our legends and our tales have a lot to tell us about ourselves and how we as a society see the world. We've also had a world that's really uh, moved very quickly and not necessarily has moved in time with the changing of our stories and tales and therefore we seem to have a morality that's kind of older than our technology in some ways um so when you come to the united states uh you know we have judaism and christianity in the western world um mainly and the religious nature of the first emigrants to uh, British America, um, mostly Protestant, especially in New England. Um, they came very consciously as religious uh, immigrants. I wouldn't say, I guess you could call them refugees. They weren't being killed off, but they were living in, in difficult circumstances. And we've inherited, in some ways, a lot of their traditions, and certainly in ways that we view good and bad or evil. Um, and the ways in which we apply those those philosophies to um, to our environment, to our public spaces, our public transportation—that's kind of giving climate change a free pass in terms of morality. Um, I think that needs to change. I think we do need to view transportation and safety and equity and the design and presence of public transportation and energy, etc., um, and the environment as moral issues. Um, so I'm going to go into, you know, looking at in some ways why we don't and why we have what 
what we have in terms of attitudes. Um, so we'll compare and contrast uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh with the Bible. Uh, I'm going to probably do them both grave injustices because I am definitely someone with a little knowledge, not a lot. I'm not a professor. I'm not a historian. Uh, I'm not a um, someone with fluency in biblical Hebrew, although I do know a bunch and certainly do not know any of the languages or alphabets that the uh, that Gilgamesh is found in. Uh, one thing we should know right off the bat is there's there's a lot of dispute about whether Gilgamesh should even be called an epic, and therefore the epic of Gilgamesh is perhaps not the correct title. Um, correct and incorrect are kind of weird ways to look at Gilgamesh because we are still finding tablets from very different time periods, very different places, even different languages that fill in the text, so we don't even have a final text at this point. First, let's go even further back, and I realize I'm getting a little mixed up here, but I want to go a little further back because we're really exploring uh, a couple of different themes, and I want to start with that urban, not urban theme, and I'm going to get to the page in this very good book, which I will have in the show notes. It's called Babylon, Mesopotamia and the Birth of Civilization by Paul, and I am not going to do his last name justice, Kriwazek. Um, and he writes, To the author of Genesis, the Neolithic Revolution signified the fall of man. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat of the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread. That same message was writtenly updated by a science writer who, who writes uh, about the same thing, showing the longevity of this theme. But it, it, in this light, it seems momentous that the change to agriculture as the basis of life can only have been spread, he says, by the uh, a powerful new ideology um, expressed in the form of a new religion and propagated with... Um, ideas about what those god was those gods were or was um, the next great shift of values was one that ultimately led from village farming to our own civilization and the urban revolution was not quite as destructive as the old ways as the change from hunting and gathering to farming had been but those who chose this path he writes still had to give up a great deal including their autonomy their freedom, and their very identity as self-reliant and independent actors. It must have been, he writes, a very powerful belief that persuaded them to follow a dream whose full working out was both unforeseeable and unforeseeably far ahead, a belief that could persuade men and women that the sacrifice was worth making, that city living offered the possibility of a better future, indeed that there was such a thing as the future. So I'm going to go, uh, you know, just a little more quote from, from uh, and again, I'm going to mispronounce it, Krivizek, in this book, only because I think he, he does a nice kind of covering of our foundation from which we can rise up. This Neolithic revolution took our ancestors from hunting and gathering and small kinship-based bands, 
to a settled communal village life of subsistence agriculture. That, he writes, was the great, and I quote, and I've been quoting all along, but I quote, the greatest ever mass destroyer of skills, cultures, and languages in human history. Tens of thousands of years of accumulated knowledge and elaborate tradition were swept aside. Recent studies of this pivotal period of human history concur. No band of hunter-gatherers can have simply given up all they knew and settled down in sedentary farming without engaging in a giant battle of ideas. And just to complete what I'm reading from him before we go on, hunting and gathering had provided a relatively easy living. The new ways were, on the face of it, much harder and less rewarding than those that had served humanity so well for so long. Okay. So, those are in some ways some of the downsides of moving to communal, uh, you know, village life and then city life, excuse me. But culture can ferment and grow, right? When we have cities, we can have art and writing and religion. And fortunately or unfortunately, when you have lots of people, you have ruling and laws suppressing the freedom of others in some way, shape or form. Uh, and that urbanizing revolution can be seen, obviously, in a positive or a negative light. And reading about early ancient Babylonia from Kruzak's book, um, more than 2,000 years before the Bible is written down, we have a civilization with grain silos, schools, bathhouses, large administrative office block, a religious center, and a massive building boom. When all of a sudden, possibly through a weather event or climate change, desalinization is one thing that's posited, um, or invasion or famine, everything ceases for 300 years. Um, And then Mesopotamia comes back, and with its return, we have the use of writing instead of relying solely on an oral tradition. And this is where we meet Gilgamesh because Gilgamesh is written on many of those early tablets uh, that have been discovered over the last, uh, I'll say, roughly 200 years. Um, and they've been found, as I said, all over the, uh, you know, a great, the greater Middle East, even um, in Turkey, and in different languages, these, these stone tablets written at different times, and various uh, somewhat different versions. Um, Maybe version is too big a word to use, but different words used sometimes for different things. And I'll just give one example of that. In earlier versions, we have a city called Erech, and it's called Erech of the Plazas, and then through through time is then called um, Erech of the Walls. It's a walled city. and, and I forget, there's another term that's used also referring to walls as the city changes, and actually not as it um, it grows even. So Gilgamesh versus the Bible. What Gilgamesh is not, unlike the Bible, it is not a sacred, sacred text. It is not a list of laws. It is a story, or perhaps it is... Um, a collection of stories that have been kind of basically 
tie together into one big piece. It is not primarily a morality lesson. It is not necessarily a tale of creation, although one of the stories in there um, could have been originally um, kind of a tale of creation or perhaps a tale following a creation story. Uh, The gods are not the central protagonists in this story, although our main character is said at the beginning to be half human, half uh, deity, and his mother is um, a goddess. What it is, is a story about the state of being human, or rather it is what um, it means to be a man, which lies at its core. It's a story of friendship, it's a story of adventure and loss, and it's a story of maturity and acceptance of the realities that we all as humans have to deal with, uh, primarily death. Um, so what is this story already? Okay, if you've never read it, I will summarize it in a way that might make people who have cringe, but be that as it may, that's how I'm going to summarize it. There are many, many versions, all free uh, through public, public library websites, um, and untold numbers of summaries on the internet if you would like to compare and contrast those. So what do we have? We have this great city. It's the center of civilization. And our first character here is a young king. He's half god. He's half human. He has a dream. And his goddess mother interprets the dream. And of course, it comes it comes true. Um, and it's like the Bible in that way, where when we have a dream, it often um, has great significance. This dream and the reality is that this man from the wild, I'm going to say kind of Tarzan-like, appears, who is very much like the king, looks a lot like him, is also this great big tall person, but a little smaller than the king. King is, if you haven't guessed, Gilgamesh. And I wonder whether Mesh means king, just because it's similar to Melech in Hebrew. There are some comparisons in Gilgamesh between um, Semitic words, but be that as it may, I have no idea. Okay, so this, this wild man comes to the city, and he is civilized through... Um, one could say a ritual, a set of practices, um, but here's how it goes. He gets to spend a week with a woman. This may be a ritual prostitute. We don't, it's unclear, but he had, it's the, the suggestion, although it's, it is unclear, is that there's a lot of sex during that week, and then she also does things like she teaches him how to eat, pro, eat an appropriate, you know, civilized way, dress, bathe, and he's shaven. And then there's a fight between Gilgamesh and this Tarzan-like person whose name is Enkidu. And after the fight, they become best buddies, perhaps more, because their love is described as more than as for a woman. That's a whole other rabbit hole if you want to go down, because there is a lot of writing that talks about whether or not, or how they definitely are, um, uh, a homosexual couple. Or a gay couple. Seems weird to say it the other way. A gay couple. And they are certainly, you know, best buddies. I would say, you know, you could use the term soulmates. Now, um, they, they, uh, they go on an adventure. They battle and win against a tyrant. But as a result, it becomes clear uh, 
that one of them must die, or maybe it's the tyrant, I forget who says it. One of them must die, and it ends up being the best buddy Enkidu. Um, plus, there's perhaps a guilt element here, because Gilgamesh was really the one who had wanted to go on this adventure and kill the tyrant, much against the advice of both his city elders and his best buddy. So... Um, there we go. Now we have our, our hero who's no longer this freewheeling character who thinks of himself as the rule of law and does things um, such as he described. It is described early in the text like taking women um, on their wedding night before the husband gets them. Um, and just act, you know, constantly having these, you know, these kind of fist fight kind of things. And now here he is, who is someone who is intensely, intensely mourning his friend like nobody's business. There's a very different tone now. He's lost someone irreplaceable for all time. Um, and he realizes the reality of his mortality. And if you think that this is unusual, I would say you've never less lost someone very, very important to you at a young age, particularly or specifically somebody who is of similar age to you. I know I lost a friend when I was 20. And it's very different than losing someone you consider very old, even someone very close to you, in which case you're very you're sad. But um, I'd say there's a shocking element to losing that friend at a young age and realizing that even at a young age, something terrible can happen, that your mortality, um, your living to a to a ripe old age is not guaranteed. And so there's both the sadness of losing the friend and an awareness, almost like a body memory that develops. So he realizes, Gilgamesh realizes that uh, not only has he lost this friend, not only will he have to spend the rest of his life without this friend, but that he will also be, he is also mortal. It's never quite explained why he's not protected by being half-god, but oh right. And so he goes off, and in a somewhat Ponce de Leon-like way, he's going to search for immortality. Where can he find this? He goes to a distant relative who is immortal and lives, like, out, you know, away from everyone. Um, and this immortality was uh, kind of a compensation I'm not sure reward is the right word, to this, this relative and his wife uh, for helping to seed the world with humans and animals and presumably plants after the epic flood. Um, it's a, it's a Noah-like story. I won't go into it. It's one of the first uh, translated parts of this text, and if you want to read that, there's certainly a whole rabbit hole to go down. There's a, you know um, lots written about the person at the British Museum who first translates it and his story. He ends up actually dying at a pretty young age, and he was unlikely kind of a self-educated person who... who does this, and he's very excited when he finds this Noah kind of story. Um, anyway, so it's a very Noah kind of story, but there are um, differences, and a great difference is there's no mention that humankind is wicked or not righteous in some way, that the gods are unhappy, or God is unhappy, with um, humanity. So it's not in any way a morality tale or... Um, 
in that way a punishment. Indeed, the gods in the Gilgamesh story are kind of overwhelmed by this and very sad. And in that way, we have a real contrast between the Bible. Because in the Bible, you know, God gives Noah these instructions. He follows out the instructions uh, in terms of building the ark, getting the animals on the ark, who's going on the ark. It's his wife, his son, three sons, and their wives. Um, no grandchildren at this point. And no pushback. Uh, the wife, Noah, his sons, Nobody says, wow, so we're going to save ourselves and we're not going to save anyone else. There's no description um, of screams of people as they're drowning or animals or anything like that. But in the Epic of Gilgamesh, there is much more a sense of what is happening. Um so let's get back to Gilgamesh. He's with, there with this relative, and the relative who is immortal says he cannot, he does not have the power to grant Im- immortality, but he tells Gilgamesh to find a particular plant. This will rejuvenate him, restore his youth, and he tells him where to find it. Uh, Gilgamesh finds it, and he starts on his way home. And on the way home, uh, it looks like he's walking, he takes a rest stop at a beach, right? There's nobody around. It's fine. He'll just leave the plant. But like any tourist who goes along the beach, who really should be aware that you should be guarding your valuables, maybe this is not a good idea to just leave them unguarded on the beach. Uh... Gilgamesh learns that he should have been careful with his important possessions, but he wasn't. And in a nice little uh, kind of parallel to the Bible again, uh, who is the bad guy in this scenario? A serpent. So this nice snake devours the plant while Gilgamesh is uh, in the water and suddenly this promise of, of restored youth is gone. Our hero returns to the city alone, without fanfare, uh, with the loss of his friend, the loss of um, the prospect of renewed youth, and a sense of his vulnerability and his mortality. There's other characters. There's lots of details I didn't go into. If you want something it would be interesting to do a PhD on, this definitely is one of them. Okay, so what are the values that, that Gilgamesh discusses and promotes as a text? Um, friendship, the buddy movie theme. <laughs> City is civilization and women as the civilizers. Women are not the ones who go off on these adventures. Uh, permanent loss and mortality and maturity um, coming out of them as a part of life. There's no moral judgment that sex is bad, that women are bad, that cities are bad, or that men left to their own devices are inherently bad. There's more than one god in the region. Each does seem to live in a particular spot, have certain roles. So let's go to the Bible. And the Gilgamesh, I wouldn't say, is a foundational text for our culture because it wasn't discovered um, until pretty late in our civilization. So it's a nice contrast as opposed to uh, Greek and Roman myths, which have kind of come up with us. But we'll go to the Bible. So first, what's even the purpose of the Bible as a text as you read it? You know, 
who's its main character? Where where is the story arc here in the Old Testament? Um, although it has creation stories and side tales, um, much like you would sometimes start the description of a movie or a book to someone telling them a little bit about what happens in the beginning and you say, oh, but don't worry, you'll find that out right away. It doesn't ruin the story. You know, the creation story, stories, because there's more than one, um, I, I would describe in the same way. I would say the main character and purpose are, you know, this family, this 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 growing family, then clan, then an emergent nation. That that's the central character with God, and the main theme is how are we going to protect um, and, in a way, civilize and rule this emerging. Uh, bunch, cohesive bunch of people, this people, this nation. And the laws, the people, the directives are all geared toward their survival, their staying together, and most importantly, their social cohesion, because there's various places where someone or a group of someones do something wrong, and various people are killed because we don't want the bad elements staying. We want this group staying kind of as together, as cohesive as possible. And it's kind of... you could say reminiscent in some ways of the pilgrims who came to Plymouth Rock in 1620. They lost half their number that first uh, winter. We have a group of people who are thinking very much in terms of their cohesion, and they have a very religious mindset, although they also were kind of open to help from the, uh, the people who were native to the area, and unfortunately uh, that situation didn't, didn't last over the decades and centuries, but the pilgrims actually had a decent relationship with uh, many of their neighbors. Okay, so there's also, you know, at the beginning there's kind of an acknowledgement that there's other gods, or there's, there's like almost like a painting over another painting. There's little glimpses, but as the text goes on, there's more and more an attitude that other gods are not are not real. So I'm going to look at a few different stories in the Bible um, just to look at, you know, how do we view things like good and bad and morality. Um, so let's go to one of those early tales. Um, we have Adam and Eve, uh, no matter how they were created, and there are two different stories, and they are quite different, so it's an interesting thing to look in. We have um, this tree, and it's called, in Biblical Hebrew, the tree of knowledge of good and bad, and it's always referred to that way. It's never referred to as the tree of knowledge. It's always referred to as the tree of knowledge of good and bad, and there's no reference to other trees of knowledge, like, is there a tree of knowledge of botany? Is there a tree of knowledge of... you know, animals or anything like this. No, we just have this one tree of knowledge, and it's the tree of knowledge of good and bad. Um, And they're not supposed to eat of it, and obviously the, the serpent convinces Eve to eat. She eats, and then she convinces Adam, then they all... Adam throws Eve under the bus, and they throw the serpent under the bus, you know, when they're all explaining uh, how this happened. But anyway, so the good and bad um, 
after they've eaten of this tree is phrased in terms of uh, gender and nakedness and sex and in terms of types of work. So it kind of goes back to that Mesopotamian, uh, you know, Neolithic revolution kind of terms, if you think about it. Um, in terms of, you know, what people are going to do to to work and to support themselves. It's it's described in terms of hard work and toil and the rigors of childbirth. Supposedly the rigors of childbirth are worse as you civilize because women aren't moving as much. They're not just kind of sitting down somewhere. Uh, having a child, perhaps that's worse because that's also a big theme in terms of good and bad. Good and bad is not defined in terms of so many of the ways I think we would think about it um, in terms of just talking to another person. Um, we don't think of it in terms, you know, in this, this tree scenario, in terms of generosity, charity, parenting, teaching, tolerance for others, employment practices, city and town planning, food distribution. Although... This, this starts to come through with the story of Cain and Abel and the Mosaic Laws uh, later. Um, the Mosaic Laws later start really address these things that you kind of address when you have a nation versus a clan, right? When there isn't this assumption that everyone is the same, um, how do you kind of make sure that they're living within certain rules when you're not seeing the same people every day? Um, you have permitted and unpermitted food. You have employment practices. You have festivals, which are, you know, sort of regulated days off from work, Shabbat. You know, that first Shabbat idea of Shabbat can be looked at that way. Marriage, employment, treatment of the poor and the stranger, equating though the stranger um, and the poor to some extent with the widow and the orphan, um, as the widow, the orphan, and the stranger don't have a regular way of supporting themselves. Uh, the rules of servitude, religious rule, uh, rituals, and the support of a priestly, non-landowning caste and artisans. Um, we also tend to see in these biblical stories the uh, rural shepherd nomadic as good versus cities that are, are not as good, even though um, to the city one goes whenever there's famine um, because uh they go down to Egypt, and Egypt is more populated, and Egypt um, has its regular uh, f food source, the Nile, which, uh, you know, is fertilizing there. We'll get to that in the Joseph story in a minute. So uh, there's no explanation uh, going f a little further in from our, you know, Cain and Abel story. We're going to go back and forth, by the way. Uh, there's no explanation for why Abraham's father leaves the big city in his civilization with his family or why Abraham is then uh, instructed to leave the city um, to go where he settles. Again, this is, could be like, you know, you read a book now and it mentions London, right? It's not necessarily going to be followed by a, a description or an explanation of what a city is and what London is like, right? You just get that vision. And this could be very much what we're getting with the Bible, that whenever it was written down, it was just assumed that this city that Abraham's um, 
and his father come from originally is a place that everyone would know about, and therefore we're not going to do this um, long explanation of what it's like, even though now we don't know what it was necessarily like. We're, we kind of guess based on archaeology and other writings. Um, but before we come to Abraham, we have the Noah story. Um, this explicitly points out God's selection of Noah because he is righteous in his generation and others are not. Only Noah and his wife, his sons and their wives are saved. They're instructed to build the ark. But there's no explanation uh, about why Noah is considered righteous but other people aren't. At least not in this uh, text. So we don't know what it is. He does seem to live kind of alone and not in a village. That's a suggestion, but we don't really know. Um, and he, his sons, his daughters-in-law, his wife, nobody says boo. Nobody argues with God um, that they're the only people who are going to be saved. There's nobody else on this ark, right? Um and this comes after, you know, those few other lessons in good and bad. We have Adam and Eve, uh, what they learn after eating from the tree of knowledge. As I said, we have this story of Cain and Abel, right? Cain uh, kills his brother after they each give gifts uh, to their God. Cain's isn't as good. He's jealous, it seems, of his brother, and he... Uh, and he kills him, but it seems like also sort of a, a a dark tale of the farmer and the rancher can't can't be friends, you know. And there's various people who write about um, how one is preferred over the other. Abel, of course, represents settled agriculture, and Cain as as the shepherd or the hunter gatherer. So here we have, you know, in one of our first few stories among humans, not humans being good to each other, but fratricide. So not even just murder, but but family members killing each other. Um, after the murder, we have Cain wandering. He married, never explains where the wife comes from, because supposedly he's here in this first family, but whatever. He founds a city that he names after his eldest son, um, and then we have, you know, this jealous God who allows somehow people to do bad things and then is bad about it. We, so we have Cain and Abel. We have many of the storylines about the patriarchs. We have Sarah and Hagar, uh, the maidservant whom she kicks out with her child, even though she had instructed her husband to have a child by him. All right. Uh, and we have uh, the story of Rebecca, who enables her son to deceive her husband, Isaac. And then we have the selling of Joseph into slavery. So we have all these kind of first generations. And in each generation there that we have any uh, real story about that we go into any detail, we have somebody doing something bad to somebody. It's really not... A parenting manual. Okay, so let's let's look to the Tower of Babel. It comes uh, with the descendants of Noah, and they found a city and a religious center. It's a tower made of bricks. It was. It's a tower that seems to be um, an ancient Mesopotamian building called a ziggurat. Um, it, it's it's pyramid-like, but with uh, levels. Um, I read something recently somewhere. Don't even ask me where about. Um, 
the building of it and how uh, there was like a slight curvature to the bricks or something and you know they talk about I mean various people have talked about and I didn't even put all of these in the show notes because you could go you could do years of research as to how these things were built and it, you're talking about a, a sophisticated laborious often decades long um, building project Okay, um, the deity here, uh, whom we have, the God, and I, I forget whether it's it's mentioned in Hebrew as Adonai or Elohim, because different stories use one or the other term, and they definitely kind of have different natures, um, and that's a whole field of research and debate and, you know, more PhD possibilities there. Okay, so the, the deity doesn't like, is jealous of the possibilities of the exchanging of ideas, the advances of talents evident in this city, and, and perhaps these people becoming godlike. They're getting close to the heavens. Um, so this, this, this deity scatters the workers and inhabitants and gives them different languages for the purpose of preventing different people from understanding one another. Um, and I'll just say, in contrast to other building projects in the Bible, uh, so we have the tabernacle, we have even the Tower of Babel, much later we have the temple that's built, um, we don't have a lot of instructions about this Mesopotamian ziggurat that's, that's alluded to in the Tower, or not alluded to, that's kind of you know, is in the Tower of Babel, perhaps because we don't have these people's it's further back in history, orally, and there's that knowledge didn't survive. Perhaps it's referring to other peoples. We don't know. Anyway, but um, it's not at all described in the kind of detail. It's also not something that this god instructs to be built, like the ark or like the um, tabernacle in the wilderness. Okay, because in those tales we have God as architect and general character contractor and being extremely detailed about what goes on. Okay, but this, this Tower of Babel is not just an explanation story. The version in, in the Bible explains why there's many languages in it with a decidedly negative spin on the advantages of um, a diversity where, where different people come together um, and a, a dense urban social hierarchy that enables art and, and religion. On the other hand, you know, if we're, if we're understanding ancient peoples, it's not necessarily an advantage if you're part of the majority of people who live in a city that being in a city is better. Unlike today where there are a lot of advantages, and I would argue that um, there's there's a lot of positive ways you could spin being in a city, even if you're someone who doesn't have um, a lot of resources. Um, in those days, being in a city and, and being lower in the social hierarchy, you were, argue, you were probably less healthy, probably had a less easy life. Your life was probably briefer, certainly, than your hunter-gatherer peers and even um, your shepherding peers. Um, so... And you probably had a lot less um, autonomy than you had uh, out there uh, with another 
kind of lifestyle. So there's a reason why these these shepherding communities might have been uh, hanging on to their independence. It meant a lot, and you weren't necessarily in a better place if you were ruled uh, by a king and you were in a city with a particular religion and a particular way of doing things. We should remember that things like city planning and public health and year-round availability of food year after year are relatively recent developments in human history, and we shouldn't take that for granted as necessarily continuing. Um, and they make the city can make the city a preferable option, but they not it wasn't necessarily that it was a preferable option until relatively recently. Okay, and before we go further, a little further with the patriarchs and descending into Egypt with Joseph, let's go to our pair of doomed cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay. And I just want to say I'm in my very messy closet, but I was putting on a sweater and still drinking my nice coffee. Okay, so we have a violent mob situation here before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. We have Abraham and his nephew uh, kind of splitting up. Lot goes to the outskirts of Sodom. Uh, And... These cities are described in terms of lawlessness. Uh, they, they, and how? What, what's the picture that we're getting? We're getting the picture of intentions of violent sexual co- uh, conduct. Um, these two, two I, I think it's two men, come to to Lot, and they ask for protection. Um, there, uh, he's a newcomer to the area, as I said. He's living on the outskirts. Um, unbeknownst to Lot, these, these guests are actually angels of God. And Lot, ever the good, good host, takes them in. We have a mob that would like Lot to turn over these men, and he refuses to. And instead, okay, and this is something that will be very strange to you if you don't know the story. He offers his daughters... They are young, they are not married, they appear never to have had sex before, and he's offering them because somehow um, being a good host is preferable. Um, But this doesn't happen. Um, Long story short, Lot and his family get out of harm's way, and God destroys both cities, including all of their inhabitants. Uh, Lot's wife, however, is not protected. She doesn't make it out. it's seemingly unha- God is seemingly unhappy that she looks back, almost like uh, uh, you know that she's going to be missing um, living there, and she's turned into a pillar of salt. Um, and so again, we have here is the deity provoked by human misconduct in an urban environment. Um, okay, so we're getting further along into Genesis, our protagonist family, proto-nation. Um, we have cities are either to be left, to be dwelled in temporarily, destroyed, or disapproved of. Egypt itself, with Joseph, effectively becomes the chief administrator of this urbanizing, but we don't know if it's very densely populated. It's, it's, it's unclear. Um... So we have we have indications of both ways. First, we have um, getting much further into the story after Joseph foretells that there's going to be seven years of 
feast and, you know, a lot of food and then seven years of famine. And he, of course, talks about, you know, having these storage cities built. So cities not or storage facilities built to save up grain for the seven years of famine. And during the famine, we have refugees from other places flowing into Egypt because they're starving. And we have Joseph himself, the chief administrator at the intake table, which is where, basically, which is where he sees his, his brothers whom he's been separated from for years because they had sold him into slavery, and that's how he ends up getting to Egypt. So he's at the intake table, which is strange for someone so high up in the hierarchy to be at. Um, we have the story of the Moses basket, right? Pharaoh um, decrees that all the male children of the Israelites, the male infants, will be thrown into the river. They're going to, to die. And um, Moses' mother hides him for a few months and then puts him into this basket, puts him out on the river, where he's found by Pharaoh's daughter, who is immediately aware that this is an infant son of a Hebrew slave, and she saves him. We don't know if others are saving these children or what happens, um, but there's a, a closeness between those very higher up in the hierarchy and the, those very low down, even these slaves. Um, and then we have Egypt transforming from a nation of small farms to a centralized bureaucracy of state control, um, way back again to the Joseph story, when Joseph um, arranges for these, these small farms to be uh, bought up during the famine. But we do know that Egypt was certainly more urbanized than where Joseph originally hails from as the son of a shepherd, and his family is still practicing shepherds. We have a society where there are vast differences in terms of wealth and power. For one thing, we have a prison. We have a class of people who aren't making their income off the land, and we have specialization. There's references um, to, in different stories, uh, to a cupbearer, baker, sorcerers, and uh, the king himself, Pharaoh. Indeed, in a much, much later story, uh, when we have King Solomon, uh, when King Solomon is securing his power, he marries the daughter of the then current pharaoh, um, his, his connection to a powerful dynasty in the greater region. And in our moment of equity today, um, I'm just going to talk about slavery as practiced in the American South, and that in the Bible. So the Bible, later on, in the Mosaic Laws, we have um, laws about how slavery is to be practiced that are still harsh to our ears, but they're certainly um, not as bad in many ways as was practiced in the American South. And when we look to the Moses story, we see a lot of differences. Um, so before we have Pharaoh ordering these male infants to be drowned, we see that Hebrew families do not seem to have been permanently separated and not certainly not separated in any arbitrary way as they were in the American South. There's also references to the Hebrews owning their own livestock, which certainly didn't exist in the American South. And as the Moses story seems to indicate, a certain amount of privacy and autonomy, which didn't um, exist. Another distinction is that in the American South, you had um, family-owned labor farms. Uh, one could call them family-owned kind of concentration camps. Um, 
where, you know, a great deal of difference in terms of practice was allowed, whereas when the Jews were in Egypt, they remain in the region where they had first settled in Goshen, um, and they don't seem to have been removed from there, and it's also a state-level um, forced labor situation. Indeed, it starts with... Um, providing bricks to build cities for which this enforced labor was used, and that was a practice even that the Hebrews later um, practiced when they're building a temple, and that was even practiced in um, throughout medieval times where you conscript labor for, you know, days or week or month to do certain uh, public projects like building roads. Um, but we have the whole stranger in a strange land theme that comes out of the experience of uh, the slavery from which the Hebrews cry out, um, such as in the book of Ruth and the New Testament. They emphasize in many ways uh, the danger that a city can pose because of this vast span um, in terms of hierarchy and what it means for the mass of people to be lower in a hierarchy some, that in some ways exists to this day. And that's not to say that rural areas are immune. I mean, we have this slavery. Uh, in ancient times, we have American and Caribbean slavery um, of agricultural forced labor. Uh, that doesn't show that just being in an area outside a city necessarily means uh, greater equity. Okay, but we're talking about the perspective of the Bible um, and kind of the 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 vast contrast they seem between uh, this shepherding, hunter-gatherer type of existence and the city. And in terms of American city, uh, American cities, American history, we bring some of these beliefs because who originally came to the U.S.? You know, we have the Puritans and the Pilgrims who bring, you know, they want, they come here so they can live in a way that's more consistent with the Bible. We also have Jamestown and the early uh, development of slavery. And slavery was and continued to be justified, rationalized in terms of the Bible. Well, there's slavery in the Bible, and etc. And indeed, Christianity was spread to, to the slaves, right? That, you know, somehow this, this religious um, background we have, says slavery is okay and in fact it took a war to uh, even initially eradicate it and one could argue it wasn't really eradicated um, in a completely meaningful way until um, the 1960s which is relatively recently um, New York uh, co colonial New York was an exception it was founded by the Dutch and it was the city was multicultural from the beginning but even here um, there was a great deal of of profit from the slave trade and, and a culture of inequity in terms of race. If, uh, if you look at race versus immigrant, you know, other immigrants, uh, particularly, but not only immigrants from uh, Europe. Now, there were exceptions, and there were people who were black who uh, were able to to prosper in a different way, but um, there's still mostly, you know, a great deal of inequity. So, let's go back to the Bible. Why are the 
biblical stories and laws kind of the wrong place to look if we're going to look at how we should govern our cities um, in terms of public transportation and public spaces and the rural-urban divide in general. And specifically when thinking about the environment and climate change. Um, So unlike the myths and creation stories of of Native Americans often, the Bible's chief concern is the existence and cohesion of this population, this particular people and their relationship with their God. You can find uh, references to the stewardship of the earth, to its different creatures and taking care of them, But it is not the main priority. It's not the purpose of the text. So if you're talking about, well, I'm going to live my life in a way that's centered around the Bible, you have certain priorities and and other things which maybe you should consider important that that aren't. And this is very much um, in keeping with how we develop in the United States. One could argue that similar to parenting, which is also it's sort of an ignored topic uh, very much in the Bible, another big life topic uh, that the Bible doesn't take on is uh, taking care of the earth. But that is something that's, you know, perhaps to these people and until recently was something obvious and assumed uh, that you didn't have plastics, you didn't have huge industry and their byproducts. So there was no thought about how to account for these. Um, and, but unfortunately, to be literal to the Bible and its concerns, therefore, in our world, then becomes a limitation itself and perhaps a dangerous one for the future of our planet. And just an, um, you know, an illustration in a way of how uh, we used to live differently uh, is you know this whole um, ethos of reduce, reuse, and recycle, which was a way of life um, before modern times, until large scale, uh, often until large scale production in factories, and even when they existed because so many people didn't have money. Um, Those values, using uh, an old expression, they went without saying. They didn't need to be mentioned in a place like the Bible as a religious or moral law because you just did that. You didn't have much, and so you reduced and reused and recycled whatever you had in the same way that something like loving parenting didn't have to be mentioned, right? The vast majority of people are loving parents, and so you don't have to prescribe uh, the details of what that is. Is. It's a way of life that is assumed. It didn't get deified. It didn't get considered to be holy in Western culture or promoted as foundational. Um, but the post-World War II consumer convenience culture that marketing and entertainment created um, considered that age-old philosophy to be outdated and eradicated it in several respects. Uh, Certainly the car companies and road builders enabled uh, dangerous speeds in their in vehicles um, but that for the most part wasn't viewed in moral terms. Uh, Legally neither road design nor car design concerns have liability um, enabling travel of dangerous speeds. We consider that to be um, mostly an owner uh, operator responsibility, right? Uh, and not the responsibility once that car is out of the showroom to be the responsibility of the manufacturer 
or the responsibility of the road builder, even though one could say that the design of roads, um, as we see from the prevalence of crashes at certain sites, is definitely a matter of design and not a matter of um, only of how people operate. Um, so going back to the Bible, just a little bit more into God as architect, we have that ark that Noah's instructed to build. We have the dimensions and the detailed decoration of the tabernacle, tabernacle that's built and then carried with the ancient Israelites in the wilderness. Um, and we have the details of festivals and holidays, the laws of kashrut, what is permitted to be eaten and not eaten, the laws of the sacrifices, what the priest should wear and how they should be supported. So there's, there's different um, topics, right, that we're concentrating on. And so it's certainly not that we have a God who is unconcerned with details all of the time. But we have nothing about street layouts, nothing about sanitation, as we said earlier, nothing about parenting. Um, and we have nothing about, you know, the layouts of public markets or squares or commons, right? If you go to certain places um, in Asia with these ancient, uh, you can see these old temples. And I don't mean the ancient ruins of temples, but temples that are still in existence and that are kind of like these large-scale um Areas with many temples, you get a sense of of this. You know, if you're if you're talking about the temple and how it's laid out as the pub kind of public space, it it gives you an idea of what that might have been like as a kind of urban design. But it's not described of as urban design. Um, so we have the absence of city planning in the Bible, in Plato, in Aristotle, not really much in terms of Greek and Roman myths, although the Romans did have kind of standard city designs when they developed cities. Um, and we have not been taught since our child, you know, in these sort of child stories, how we should live together spatially, how we should travel. We don't, we haven't, they're not foundational in terms of um, morality, and, and therefore, you know, our environmental choices, our public health choices, our public transportation choices, we don't necessarily consider in terms of basic morality, even though they really do have moral implications, and perhaps we should consider them that way. And so that is our tie-in to the general topic of our podcast and how we should look at public transportation and public spaces from all different perspectives. And so if you've made it this far, I want to thank you for listening today. I'd be really interested in your thoughts on this and other topics, and you can... Uh, Leave that on our various venues where you can contribute to your thoughts. Um, in terms of our sources, I, I definitely am referring to fewer sources today, the ones I most have relied on. I'm not going to point you to any particular translation of the Bible because that's, you know, 
you can get various translation in so many different places. There's so much on these topics that it's available for free. If you have a library card, library cards now enable you to not only search uh, for books and arrange to borrow those books, but all different kinds of sources, magazines, um, and newspapers, and courses. It's really incredible what's available. So I point you towards those. I will point you towards a couple of uh, sources about Gilgamesh that I relied on. And I will say goodbye to you again. Thank you for listening. It's been a pleasure. And I am still here drinking my coffee and I wish you a very wonderful day. Sorry.